Welcome to Kindred Voices, brought to you by Pennsylvania Kim Connector. Kindred Voices is a podcast dedicated to helping kinship families throughout Pennsylvania. I'm your co-host, Tia Maria. And I'm your co-host, Andrea. Okay, Tia Maria, let's bring on our special guest for this episode. All right, thanks, Andrea. Today, we'd like to welcome Dr. Joseph Crumley, our kinship care expert, or as I like to call him, our guru. So, oh, thank you. So welcome to our show. Uh, welcome to our listeners. Can you tell them a little bit about who you are before we get started? Oh, okay. Uh, this is probably the hardest part of the show, uh, talking about myself. <laughs> but um, my name is Joe Crumbly. I'm a, a licensed clinical social worker uh, in private practice as a family therapist. And um, I've worked in kinship care um, over the last 15 to 20 years. Sounds like a long time. And um, my work with kinship families has been involved in helping children transition and living with relative caregivers um, when they're no longer able to live with their um, birth parents. Uh, I've done some writing, some research, some teaching, and um, I've also had the pleasure of working with Tia Maria and the Navigator program last year in developing training for professionals and for relative caregivers as well around kinship care. So that's me. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, Joe definitely worked with us on the training. So it's on our website. So go check it out. <laughs> um, but Joe, so I want to start by asking you, what makes kinship care so beneficial for children? Well, we've got about a good 15 years of research now um, on outcomes for children in kinship care. And um, one of the outcomes in kinship care is that there's increased stability for the children when living with relative caregivers. And by that, I mean there are fewer placement changes. Um, there are fewer ch changes as far as um, schools and locations. There's less disruptions in kinship pay care. And that's all compared to foster care and out-of-home care. Uh, we're also finding that there's greater feelings of safety for the children when living with kinship care. Uh, we're also finding out that um, there's less running away. Uh, children have greater connections with their siblings and with their, their, their birth family when living with kin. And um, we're also finding out that any behavioral problems that children are having seem to be addressed a lot quicker when living in kinship care. And the outcomes are a lot better when living with kin than with, with non-kin. So those are just some of the, the benefits for children that are living with kinship care compared okay. to living in non-relative placements. So does that mean that most counties are encouraging kinship care and sort of looking at that first? Yes, um, because of this kind of research and because of those out, uh, um, uh, outcomes, um, there's actually been policies on a state, county, and national level uh, really suggesting that kinship care be considered first as an alternative when when children aren't able to live with birth parents. Okay. Now, sometimes... Consequently, there are programs that focus on getting children with family, kinship families. Got it. Um, now, sometimes we'll get mm -hmm. some calls, and um, Andrea can definitely speak to this, but sometimes we'll get calls from you know, grandparents, aunts, et cetera, who will say that 
their, you know, a kinship child was put in foster care and that they weren't even given the option to take care of them. What do you think's going on when that happens? Because they, they're angry when that happens. And we don't really know, well, why didn't they even consider them? Do you, do you know of any reasons for why that might happen? That, I'm, oddly enough, and to my embarrassment, um, that was considered best practice at one time um, to immediately put children in foster care. Uh, once they came into the child welfare system. Um, and I think what we've started to see over the years is because of the research and because of the findings, we're finding out that children do better with relatives than with non-relatives. Uh, that's now moved us into um, a, another approach to best practice where relative caregivers should be the first source of, co of contact. And agencies are Still, a lot of times when that happens, it's a lot of times it's because of um, they're in a crisis, uh, they're, they're, they're dealing with imminent danger, and the first people that come to their mind uh, are foster parents because okay. the parents are there, they've already been recruited, they're already available, they've already been licensed. So um, that's usually why they will consider the children for foster care rather than kinship care at first, as a, as a first option. Um, but I'm finding that more and more um, agencies will immediately then pursue relative cares, care once the children are out of imminent danger. And I think that's the practice that you have a lot of agencies doing now. Got it. So they're usually concerned with imminent danger. They'll go to foster care a lot of times because of that. But then once the, 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 the prevalence of imminent danger has been addressed, they should be by policy and even by law now consider relative caregivers as the next best option. Okay, that's super helpful. Andre, do you think you, isn't that helpful information? It, it is helpful. I know that um, the Families First Act birthed our program. But I, I is that what you're talking about, Dr. Crumbly, that kind of mandated them to look for kinship rel caregiver, rel re relative caregivers yes. first? Excuse me. Okay. That, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, kind of building off of that, what do people need to do to prepare for being excellent kinship parents? What are some of the things you'd recommend for them? Well, um, I... I, I I thought about that question, and um, this may sound strange, but being prepared for the shock mm. <laughs> is maybe the first thing that relative caregivers um, need to do in order to prepare for the children, because um, no one really plans to become a kinship caregiver. Mm -hmm. uh, it's usually by it's usually in a crisis is usually unplanned, uh, is usually by fault, by default, mm -hmm. and it's usually without supports. And, um, and that's different from foster care and adoption. Uh, so for relative caregivers, it's being able to kind of um, um, be prepared for that shock of not being prepared. And then I think after that, it's kind of um, getting help to, to, to figure out what are the first steps, what are the first things you do and kind of like organize 
yourselves once the shock has kind of passed. And that's where programs like yours, I think, are so, so very important. Um, because for a lot of relative caregivers, when when they are first thrust into kinship care, they're they're in that point of shock and they're very isolated and they're right. very alone. So I almost feel at that point, you need to reach out and get connected with resources that can help you figure out where do I start? What do I need to do? What are my first steps? So I know I said a whole lot, but if I had to cut, break that down, it would, it would be, be with be prepared to be shocked and then get support to help you brainstorm. Where do you go? What do you do? How do you get started? Okay. That, I think that makes a lot of sense. That's very helpful. And then what can those kinship parents do to help children transition to being in their care? So to transition from being, you know, uh, from this being grandma to now, okay, this is essentially mom. How, mm -hmm. how, how do they help them with that transition? Mm -hmm. um, I think, well, 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 Tia Maria, can I go back to that second question again? Absolutely. Um, and, and let me add a little bit to that, because I think once you get out of the shock, and once you get yourself some support systems, you know, like a navigator program or social workers, uh, I think it's then important to, to start looking at issues related to the concretes, space, mm. food, right. clothing, um, legal status, mm -hmm. uh, educational programs. Um, so I, I, I think then going into those concrete issues of resources then kind of helps you prepare as well. And that's assuming that you have a chance to do this before the children get there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. You know, but if you don't have a chance to do it before the children get there, then yeah, the, the, dealing with those concrete issues and needs, I think become real important in terms of how to prepare yourself to be a, a kinship care provider. Um, to get back to that next question, how do you transition the children? Um, when I think of the children, um, the first thing, and you would think this would be natural for relatives to do it, and they do it instinctively, and that is to make the children feel welcome mm. Mm. and wanted mm. and entitled to be there. And, you know, again, it sounds so basic, okay? Yeah. And you would think, well, the children would know that. They're relatives. They've known them all their lives. They should know that. But it's, but the, the, the feelings are different when you're coming to a relative's home as a visitor as to coming to a relative's home to live. Right. So, um, and, and that feeling of rights and entitlements are very different. So for relative caregivers, uh, for the children to help them with that initial transition, they need to know that they're welcome, that they're wanted, that they have a right to live, to, to be there, that they're entitled to be there. Um, and if they're coming out of any kind of trauma or unstable situation, then it's important for them to also then know that they're safe, that they're protected, and that it's not their fault that they're there in this situation. Yeah. So I think those would be the immediate things, the immediate emotional kind of responses, and then following up with those real tang, tang, you know, a tangible concrete things like structure, consistent food, clothing, shelter, mm -hmm. um, routines, mm -hmm. and then engaging them in setting that all up. So those would be, I think, some of the transitional stages and issues Relative right. caregivers might want to go with go through with the children and expect the testing. 
I think mm -hmm. um, caregivers need to expect that too. And, and to transition to children through the testing. Do you really want me here? Mm -hmm. Am I really welcomed here? Yeah. Are these really the rules? Are you really going to structure this? This is different right. from the way I was raised, yeah. you know, live with my mom and dad. So it's that kind of testing and, and transitioning that that's a part of helping children adjust. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, you it's know. interesting that you say about the testing, because I was just just yesterday talking to a caregiver that was talking about how she feels like she's being tested. And then I had to talk to her about attachment and what that yes. that theory can can look like for caregivers. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's just these things are just so very real for families that when when you speak about them, it's like, OK, yeah. But then when you when I can take what you say and actually connect it to something I've experienced already, it just kind of brings everything full circle. Oh, that's great. <laughs> because I know it's a lot of a lot of it's intuitive. But then when you've got a framework to attach it to, yeah, it it, it, it explains a lot better what why you're doing and what you're doing and what you're seeing. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, Joe, when you brought up the the idea that you need to make the children feel feel welcomed. It it also made me think about, well, how do they prep? How do the caregivers prep? You know, maybe other family members mm. who are living in the house. And what if they don't really want the kid there? Like, how do you? How, and that I guess it sort of gets into question four too. But how do they then prep those other family members? And you know what I mean? And kind of get their buy-in at least, or or is that not an issue? Oh, it's, it's an issue. Um, because one of the things that we're starting to realize in kinship care is that when you bring a child into kinship care, you are changing pre-existing relationships. You're changing pre-existing roles. Mm. You're changing pre-existing responsibilities in the, in the home. Um, and everyone tends to think that everything is going to stay the same, even though this child comes in. Mm. But things do change, um, not only for the people living in the home, but also family members outside of the home, like birth parents, right. aunts and uncles, um, and for the relative caregiver. If I had to start with um, where you first need to make the changes to help people adjust, it would be with the caregiver first, mm -hmm. because you're no longer functioning as a relative, an aunt or uncle, a sister or a brother. You're now acting in a parental role. You're now the limit setter. You're now the decision maker when before you were just someone who advised. Um, <clears throat> you're now the primary provider where before you may have just been a support. So, um, um, so, so it's important that that relative caregiver actually have discussions with members in the family, both in the home and outside the home, to have a discussion about how this child living with them makes how, how it changes things now that this child is in their care. Um, I, I, I'll be more concrete. For example, if you have your other children living in the home your birth children living in the home and you now bring in someone who has been, who is their cousin. Mm -hmm. Those children now have to understand that this cousin who is now being brought into the home has the same rights, the same privileges, the same responsibility as if they were born 
in this home as if they were another one of your birth children. Right. And that's a lot mm-hmm. because all of a sudden um, rights and privileges have to be shared. They have to share you as their mom. <laughs> uh, they have the same rights and privileges to food, clothes, toys, just like they have. And that's a real issue that has to be looked at. So um, that's just one of those examples of um, you know, helping other family members, for example, other children in the home, adjust to a cousin coming into the home. Right. Um, so, so I think, and, 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 and the cousins are gonna feel, now have to treat this person as a brother and a sister now, not as a cousin. <laughs> that that's a real change again that family members have to adjust to and families do it all the time this kinship care has been around for centuries as long as there's been family so families do this instinctively well all of a sudden this cousin is like my brother and sister and they'll just bring them in but it's still a stage that you have to go through right. um, families still have to adjust to in order to make it work so dr crumley um you know i'm Kind of from the old school. So when I was growing up, like my mother didn't talk to me about any kind of the decisions (laughs) that she made. So, you know, when you're talking about those changes, is it something that the, the kinship parent should actually talk to the children about? Because also, I used to be a foster parent recruiter, and when I would do home studies, we would interview the children in the families to see what they thought. Hey, you know, your parents are going to be fostering. What do you think about that? Like, we would, we'd, uh, we'd at least get their feedback on it. Should kinship parents, you know, talk to their children about what's going to happen? Is it like, should it be like that deliberate, or how do they go about doing it? Well, I think just what you did. Is, is a perfect example. Um, kinship care, first of all, I do think it makes things a lot easier and it makes the transitions a lot smoother if they talk to the children okay. and talk to other family members yeah. about how, th- how this child living in their home will change them and how they will feel about this child moving into the home. Because you want to be able to get other families members buy-in and support. Right. And that's the reason for the conversation. Yeah. So yeah. that they have buy-in, so that they have support, that they, so they feel that their impressions and feelings make a difference. Um, and so that, that, so that they're not so shocked and so that they won't feel resentment or jealousy. So that's the reason why you want to have, the, have those conversations. And those conversations can be just as simple as, as what you did. You know, it's getting relative caregivers to ask the children or ask other family members. It could be aunts, other aunts, uncles, even the birth parent themselves. How do you feel about this child? How do you feel about me now raising this child? Yeah. It, yeah. it just starts that simple. How, does, how do you feel about me now raising this child? And, 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 and um, how do you feel as though it's going to change your relationship with this child or my relationship with you? Mm-hmm. Um, and they may not even know what you're talking about. But then that's where you take the next step. Well, it's going to change things. You know? um, now um, you, you've always had this bedroom to yourself. Now you're going to have to share it. Mm-hmm always had toys that belong to you now they're going to want to now they're going to want to share those things right um the time you and i used to always spend alone well now you have to share it with them so 
That's how things are going to change. Now, how are you going to feel about that? Because again, they may not know how it's going to change. Birth parents, well, instead of the child being told what to do by you, now they have to be told by what to do by me. Mm -hmm. um, how are you going to feel about that? Or the child coming to me for comfort or support instead of coming to you because they used to do that with you. How are you going to feel about that? You know, how, how are we going to explain why they're living with me and not with you any longer? Mm -hmm. What's that explanation going to be? Right. So that we're all saying the same thing. So those are the kinds of conversations that caregivers need to have with other family members. And it does make it a lot easier if they initiate it yeah. uh, so that the person isn't so shocked or isn't resentful so that we can, so that you can get their buy-in and get their support around the, around the change. And if they don't know how to have those conversations, that's again where I think programs like yours are so helpful. You know, get support with somebody who can help you have those conversations. Right. That's where professionals can come in handy to set that up. So, um, I mean, this is definitely leading into question four. And what we've, what we've seen over the year and a half or so in terms of calls is there's a continuum in terms of the relationship that the the kinship parent and often it's the grandparent has with their biological child and so that could range anywhere from their you know super sympathetic with the bio with the, the hardships that their biological child might be going through might even be sort of facilitating some of the behavior all the way to they want it, they don't want to have anything to do with the biological child like they want to i mean want to minimize that and so when you have that range of kind of relationships what what are some of the th ways that they can handle when they do have to navigate things with that biological child like what do they do you know when they're almost too i want to i don't know if that's the right word but they're like i said they're almost like enabling all the way to i want them totally out of my life like how do you handle that range of relationships with mm -hmm. the biological parents um i i i i think let me start with the extremes okay you know because like you said you can have one extreme of being of enabling and being very close and very attached to the birth parent and then you can have the other extreme of 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 being very distant very angry with where there's a lot of resentment and you literally want them out of your life yeah um if we start with the extreme because i find that kinship care can can put stress even on the best of relationships mm -hmm. between that caregiver and that birth parent and i think for the caregiver um, just being able to have those conversations with that birth parent around um, it's important to the children that you still be involved, to be able to admit that and say that, uh, to be able to admit and say that it'll make things easier for the children if we work together. Mm. Um, I know maybe there have been a lot of strain and stress in the past, but it'll make this them living here a lot more stable if we can work together. Um, you still have a role in the children's life. I want to make sure that you have a role in the children's life. Uh, I need you to make things stable in, in my home. Mm -hmm. 
if we work together. So admitting that, having those conversations, because you may not be able to change the past because right. there may, because it may be so many things that may have happened to the point where it's irreparable, but you can start looking at how we're going to work together now on behalf of, and for the sake of the children and that the children need you. And I recognize your power and in your influence, and I need you too to help make this work. So that's sometimes a starting point because I think it's important for relative caregivers to, to realize that, um, the birth parents are feel feel just as, if not more, intimidated by them mm. as they feel intimidated by the birth parent. And in fact, they feel even more intimidated um, by virtue of the fact that you have the child. They right. feel more helpless than, mm. the, than the, the relative caregiver may not think that, but they feel just as, if not more, helpless because you have the child. So what are you gonna do? So they're thinking, what are you telling them about me? That's what the birth parents wondering. What are you telling them about me? How are you gonna to explain to them why they're with, not with me? How are you gonna to explain to them where I am? What are you gonna tell them about me? Are you gonna get in the way of, of my relationship with them? Are you gonna bias me against them? So starting off with those kinds of conversations can become so important in terms of, I want you involved. I'm not going to put you down. Right. I want you to be a part of this family. I want us to, I want us to be saying, what, what do you want them, want me to tell them about you so that we're all on the same page? Those kind of conversations. Because it says to the birth parent that you, the caregiver, consider me important. Mm -hmm. That you, the birth parent, recognize, that you, the caregiver, recognize that I have an influence. That you, the birth, you, the caregiver, recognize that the children still need me and want me there. So it's, it, and and that's all, all that is being said just by a few, by those simple questions of, you know, I, I need you to be involved. The children need you. I want you to be involved. It'll make things a lot easier if we can work together. And then how do we do it? Yeah, that makes sense. Well, okay. So I have, this is, this might be a hard question, but I think that like a lot of times th this certainly comes up as a question in foster care and I imagine that it comes up in kinship care as well and that is what's the reason that children still can really love their parents even if they're ab abusive or neglectful oh yeah it's 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 amazing children's loves the, the, the love of a child is just incredible um the loyalty of children uh the depth of that is is just incredible um there are a couple of theories one of it is that it's instinctive and innate you know there's just that attachment that yeah. they're born with so that's one theory um another theory as to why the children do that is because um the the the, the you know the children need to be, be part of a family. Mm. They want parents. Right. Uh, one of it. One of it has to do with that emotional need for that kind of attachment, and the other has to do with wanting to be like other children and other families who have parents. Um, so there's that drive to have their parents, to be connected with parents, and to have parents like everyone else. Um, there's this drive in children to want to believe that their parents are okay. Mm -hmm. um, 
children's sense of identity, children's sense of worth are directly connected with their parents. Uh, I'll be more specific, how children feel about themselves is directly connected to how they feel about their parents. So they want to feel that their parents are good people, nice people, honest people, because um, if my parents are those kind of people, then I'm that way too. Okay. I don't mean to make it that simplistic. You know? No, I think that's really helpful. <laughs> yeah, but how I feel is a, is a direct connection and extension of how I feel about my parents and my family. Right. Um, and when children ask questions of uh, what I'm going to be like and who am I like and you know, what I'm going to be like, what am I going to become, what am I good at, their references to those questions and answers are family yeah. and parents. Yeah. So, yeah, they 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 can't help but want to stay connected, want to feel loved, need love, and and part of again identity, self worth is directly tied into um, how they feel about their parents. Okay, and so that's part of why, whenever possible, it is important to for the kinship caregivers to still kind of nurture the appropriate relationship with those biological parents, because it really is important to the children. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things uh, relative caregivers need to keep in mind is children will be thinking how you feel, will be, will be thinking in their mind, and it may be on an unconscious level, but children will be thinking how my relative feels about my parent may also be an indicator of how they feel about me. Yeah. Absolutely. Because if you don't like my parents, then maybe you may not like me. Yes. I, and I, I can certainly attest to that because even as a uh, child of divorce, so not can, although I had my great, my great grandmother raised me too, but anyway, I distinctly remember feeling <laughs> like I looked so much like my Ooh. father that I, I felt like, okay, my mother doesn't like my father. Mm -hmm. like me. Yeah. So Not I sure. totally understand that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it carries right into Ken as well, you know, yeah. especially when they hear relative care saying, you look like your dad, you look like your mom, Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that could either be a compliment or a curse, you know, depending <laughs> <Right>. on <laughs> and the children pick up on that, you know? So if you don't like my parents and maybe you won't like me, um, they'll even go so far as the children be, may, may even go so far as the thinking, um, can I like my parents and will you still like me if I do? Mm -hmm. So yes. relative caregivers even have to make it okay for them to not be like their parents, but not only be like their parents, but also to love their parents Yeah. and to have a connection and have a relationship with their parent yeah. or to even talk about their parent. You know, so relative caregivers have a lot of influence on their children's self-esteem, self-worth, even to the point of who they love, who they cherish, because um, you know they, they, they want to maintain that relationship with that relative caregiver and they don't want to jeopardize that. You know, right. So it will affect how they feel about birth parents. Absolutely. So what I'm hearing is that caregivers really need to be intentional about fostering their own self-awareness about how they're communicating mm -hmm. with children, with their family members, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Very, very, very much so, you know, um, and, and, and it's on such a nonverbal level. Mm -hmm. It may not even be what they're, what they're saying, but mm -hmm. um, how they're acting 
and um, what the nonverbal communication is to their children about how they, how relatives, caregivers feel about other family members. So, um, yeah, and it's a lot of pressure, you know, for relative caregivers to do that. You know, yeah. this is not an easy task at all. Yeah. Um, but they just need to know that the children are, are super sensitive, and especially if they've been traumatized, mm -hmm. they are super and oversensitive and overreactive to people, places, things, you know, nonverbal communication. So relative caregivers, yeah, definitely have to. And I've even seen relative caregivers who are, you're only human as a relative caregiver. Like you said, for relative caregivers, one of the things that different, that's different about kinship care is for the relative caregiver, they, have a, they are related to that birth parent. So they're going to have personal feelings. It's personal for them. Right. Well, foster parent and adoptive parent, they don't have a personal relationship with the birth parent. Relative caregivers do. So there's going to be an emotional reaction, an emotional response, and an emotional connection. There's going to be loss and grief issues that are going to be triggered by their relationship with that birth parent. And the children are going to see it. But I think it's so important for relative caregivers to get back to the children, let them know that they can have their own relationship with the birth parents and that it will be respected, uh, that it will be cherished. And in fact, relative caregivers may even have to go so far as to saying, this is how we're going to keep your mom involved with us or your dad involved with us. Uh, this is how I'm going to recognize their place and their role in your life. I'm going to send them cards, pictures of how you're doing. And I know you know that we haven't been getting along with each other, but still they're your parents and that's separate from me and they do have a place and this is how we're going to keep their keep their place in their role and this is how we're going to recognize their place in your and their role in your life we're going to send them pictures of your graduation we're going to let them know when you have performances i'm going to be inviting them you're going to be sending them letters then this is how we keep their place and this is how i'm going to recognize their place in their role with you yeah that's nice mm -hmm. Despite our relationship, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. that's the key. Despite the, the tension that you pick up on, because I've seen kids with relative caregivers and relative caregivers to pick up the phone. Oh, you must have been talking to mom, mm -hmm. and they know. How would you know that your face? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's okay. But still, I'm giving you the phone to mom, and I'm going to talk respectful with mom, and I'm not going to put mom down. So right. the kids still know that you respect their place, that parent's place. Great. Uh, Andre, I'll turn it over to you. Well, so we've been talking about all of these challenges that um, caregivers face. And with all your years of work with families, what would you say the number one challenge that kinship caregivers faces? You know what might be the number one? Is taking care of themselves. Yes. <laughs> totally. Oh my. Tell me there, more about that. Oh yeah. Um, the biggest challenge is remembering you have to be okay for the kids to be okay. Yeah. And and being and and and, and being able to take care and finding time and knowing when it's time to be selfish in order in order for you to take care of the children, knowing when it's time to put yourself first so that you can continue to put the children first. And, and, and making that connection. What the research has just recently found out is that how relative caregivers feel about being a kinship caregiver has a direct impact 
on the children that they're caring for. How relative caregivers, the level of relative caregivers' depression impacts outcomes and well-being of the children. That's what we're seeing. So it's almost like saying relative caregivers, take care of yourself. Make sure you're addressing your stress level, your de your depression. Make sure you're finding, making sure that 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 you you're finding ways of of and sources of satisfaction of support for yourself, because your feeling good has a direct impact on how the children feel about themselves. So, the difficulty is that relative caregivers. The reason why I'm saying that's a number a real number one issue is because relative caregivers instinctively sacrifice. They instinctively put the needs of the children before themselves. Um, and, 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 and it's important that at some point they monitor how the stress is affecting them and what affect they're communicating to the children. Because if children can feel your stress and they're automatically going to start thinking that they're the source of the stress. They can't help but make that connection. So, and if you think, and if you remember one of the things I had said that was so important is the children need to feel welcomed and wanted. And that has a lot to do with your affect. You're happy to see them. Um, you're wanting them to be there. So um, taking care of yourself emotionally, taking yourself care of yourself physically, um, I, th I think are, are, are real crucial, making sure you have the support systems so that you can communicate to your children that I'm okay, that I'm gonna do fine, um, that your being here um, isn't going to break me. And then having those ways of, of, of supporting yourself. I hope that makes sense. It totally does, yeah. Uh, it Everything kind of seems to root back to children needing that sense of love and belonging. And mm -hmm. if, if a caregiver is not taking care of themselves, they're depressed, you can't foster that sense of love and belonging in a child if you don't have it for yourself. Mm, so I, for me, I think self-care is a way that mm -hmm. we kind of give back to ourselves to show that we're worthy of love and belonging. Mm, and that, that we can give that to others as well if we first take mm. care of us. So, mm -hmm. and it teaches so the children self care. I love what yes. you said. I love that word. Yeah. Yes. It teaches now, them self care. Yeah, I, and that's something that kids aren't inherently born with, right? Like, <laughs> you have to intentionally teach them these things. So, mm -hmm. uh, and caregivers, if they if they're fifty, you know. 60 years old and they've been doing what they've been doing forever, then slowing down probably feels pretty scary to them. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm wondering, you know, what are some ways they can overcome that challenge mm -hmm. or those barriers to self-care? Mm -hmm. Do you even have any recommendations on things that they can do to start that process? One of the, one of the things that we see as a major factor um, and challenge for relative caregivers separate from the children and birth parent and all those issues that we brought up is isolation. Um, they lose friends. They lose relationships. They lose routines. Uh, there's loss of dreams. So getting back those relationships, getting back those routines, getting back the structure in their life um, which sounds really very difficult, 
are, is something, you know, that's difficult, not just for relative caregivers, but I think parents in general, they all, you know, kind of go through that stage. But for relative caregivers, it's the loss of routines that you may have had in place. It's the loss of friends. It's the, it's the loss of support and structure. So I think building in those routines, uh, making sure that there's respite so that you can have time for your respite, um, making sure that you have a support system of other relative caregivers or family members that will give you and allow you to have time for yourself away from the children, um, building back those routines around church, you know, around community activities, around civic activities, um, getting them back in place becomes so important because those things do get, do get disrupted. But, but making sure that that's a goal it may be modified, but making sure you build that into your lifetime, lifestyle and your routines, I think are, are really very crucial and very important. Um, even in the structure with your children during the day, building in alone time, quiet time, not only just for them, downtime for them as well as yourself, um, giving the children cues and structures for how to come into your space knock on the door, um, call me on my cell. We've got these phones even in the house, <laughs> okay? <laughs> you know, knock on the door before you come into the, I mean, come into the bathroom, assuming they're age appropriate, you know, because when they're two and three, your space is my space. You know, <laughs> you, had, yeah. you know, that's attachment and you want them to have that attachment. But as they begin to handle the separation, allow that because that's about respecting each other's space. And that's what you're teaching. Yeah. Respecting self-care, respecting boundaries, because I'm even gonna give you your space. I'm gonna give you your time out. I'm gonna give you your alone time. And we, and, 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 and we balance it out. So you practice what you preach and you build that even inside your own home and as well as outside. And you explain it to them just that way. Yeah. Really you know, good. Dr. Crumley, um, mm -hmm. One question that came up based on your, you know, your answer for Andrea, and that is, we've always focused on, you know, what you need to do when, when you as a caregiver um, have made the decision, you, you've answered yes to those questions. Yes, I can. Yes, I want to. I'm going to do it. Yes. What happens when the caregiver answers those questions and says no? you know what, I can't take care, or the, the potential caregiver, I can't take care of my grandchild. How do they then, you know, communicate that to, if, if they need to, but, you know, communicate that to the child and, and, and not be wrecked with guilt? Do you know what I mean? Like, how, yes. how do, they, how do yeah. they manage that? Yeah. Well, well Tia Maria, I'm going to even complicate that question a little bit more. What do what does the caregiver do and how do they handle it when they're already a caregiver and they're thinking about changing their mind? Mm, yeah. Because yeah. The, the, the level of guilt, the level of 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 um, ambivalence that comes from changing your mind, and I'm bringing it up, bringing this up only because at some point in time i don't have any research on this but i just believe that at some point in time a caregiver can't help but ask the question 
can I, should I, and will I continue being able to be a caregiver? And I think they're even vulnerable to asking that questions because of issues of health and because of issues of finances. Yep. Um, uh, issue and, and issues of age, you can't help but ask that question. Birth parents ask that question. You know, would I have done this if I had it? If I knew what I was getting into, <laughs> you know what I mean. Right. So you know, if birth parents are asking that question, and, and you know, relative caregivers must be asking that question. So when you have questions of ambivalence and feelings of ambivalence, when you are a caregiver, what do you do about it? Right. And I think to answer that question, um, I, I think you have to kind of go back to looking at, um, am I able to provide the children those feelings of being welcomed, of being wanted? Because how you feel about being a kinship caregiver is important and does impact the quality of your care of these children. Before we used to say, don't worry about how you feel, just do it anyway. No, no. Research is saying how you feel impacts the children and the quality of care. So you've got to start with asking yourself the question, can I provide that feeling of being wanted, welcomed, and entitled to the children? Can I provide them the emotional nurturance? Can I provide them the physical nurturance, the physical things that they need, food, clothes, shelter. And if there's a gap between those questions and the answers, you have to take a look at, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Right. Or maybe I shouldn't continue doing this. And then you've got to start looking at other alternative resources. Right. And when I, and, 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 and I'm not just talking hypothetical. I've talked with relative caregivers. I have worked with relative caregivers who have been kinship caregivers and had to have the children placed or removed from their home because of health, because of age, uh, because of finances, uh, because the children's behavior has changed Mm. as far as um, they're wanting to be there or acting out behavior or emotional behavior. And the relative caregivers have had to deal with those issues. And you're right, the guilt just kicks in, you know. Um, And for a lot of relative caregivers, it's about learning how to live with the guilt because it doesn't go away. But you learn to live with the guilt based on what's in the best interest of the children. Right. And it may feel very selfish because a lot of times you're looking at, I can't provide what they need. So you're back to the I again, but you have to go back to the I. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, and the children may, may be angry and they may stay in that angry place for a while, but you just have to kind of like live with that and just kind of like be there until things change because they're going to feel the loss and there might be resentment. And, um, you know, and I've seen relative caregivers have to go through that, you know, and, 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 and the comment that they're frequently giving the children is, I can't give you what you need. I can't provide you what you need. You deserve better. You deserve the best. Mm. Okay. I'm no longer able to give you what you deserve. So it's those kinds of conversations. Right. And it's selfish of me to, 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 to allow you to not get what, is best for you, even if it has to come from someone else. So it's those kinds of scripts that you have to have with the yeah. children. And, and, and none of them may work either, okay? But you have to have those scripts so that you can live with the guilt. Right. Okay. Right. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, but, no, uh, that was terrific. Thank no, you. Okay. Mm-hmm.
So we've talked a lot about what caregivers and families can do. What can communities and governments do mm. to support these families? Wow. Well, I think we're finally starting to recognize kinship families as, I think we're finally starting to look at kinship families as part of the norm now. And we're getting, by that I mean, they're now giving, being given the same standing and the same recognition as traditional families. And the, the, the two parent family, the single parent family, the blended family, kinship families, kinship grand families have to be given the same clout, the same recognition and the same resources. So I think it starts with that first, no longer looking at them as alternative families, but looking at them as now normal, normative, traditional families. So if we give them that recognition and it's happening, they now have legal standings in court. Relative caregivers can go to court now, okay? Relative caregivers, but most states now are now required to contact relative caregivers when there's issues related to um, a placement of the children. You contact mom, you contact dad, extended family and birth family and grandparents. If children have been living with relative caregivers for six months or more, they now have standings. And I'm, I'm kind of talking about in Pennsylvania now. I think that's that's the law now, you know, and I yes. think the other states have it. You, if, you, if they've been with you that long, then they, they have standings in court and they have to be considered as alternatives. So I think it's those kinds of things that we have to do as a community to help families, give them the recognition, give them the standings, and then with that, provide them the supports, financial, legal, housing, educational, supports that we would with any family and making those those families available to the families. I think the other thing that's really crucial now is that every system needs to have some type of trigger that identifies kinship families. Um, I, I use myself as example. I can go into a bank. I can go somewhere for legal services, for mental health services, for health services. And as soon as I check the box that says I'm a veteran, there's a whole system that opens up, <laughs> you know, of referrals and services that gets triggered because I punched the box that I'm a veteran. Okay, does that, all right. And, and, and next thing I know, there's a whole questionnaire that comes up around <laughs> services that i need are you with the va you know that they want me to now answer um do you have a social worker or do you do this 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 are you on medication and it's just a whole drop box of questions that come from me checking that one box and even my interview goes into a different direction where now the person interviewing me asks me around asking me questions related to veterans issues we need to have that type of trigger that type of tab for children if they go into school who are you living with relatives ding all of a sudden the tab opens up if it goes to health services or if they're going to a recreational service center or if they're going to um, um you know a dance class whatever it is who you live with should trigger a whole set of questions and that question needs to be asked so that we can so that the system so that there's a system-wide response to kinship care 
that child is with a relative and it needs to trigger it. So I think system-wide that needs to be set up as well. Um, I love that idea. Too. Yeah, and for birth parents, where do your children live? With the relative. Okay, here we go. Triggers right. a whole nother set of questions. Yeah. And services. Because like you said, it, it changes just like the dynamics of the entire conversation at that exactly. point. Exactly, right. Uh, services, support services, financial, legal, housing, yeah. The whole conversation yeah. changes. Yeah, and I think just in general, like that should be the standard to cover a person as a whole, not person. just one section of Perfect. Yeah. what they are. So That's right, yeah, just yeah. a standard, normal operating procedure, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know what I love about that idea is that it is going to make it easy. It'll even make it easier to find the resources that are Mm -hmm. relevant to them. Because that's like, that is a big issue that the informal families have that first, like we make them jump through hoops to find stuff and we make it challenging for them to be eligible for it. So the, right. the acknowledgement that this mm-hmm. is a group that, you know, deserves some special treatment in a way and mm-hmm. an easier access. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And I think, like you said, I, 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 and I love what you just said, is educating families to know that they have access yeah. to those services. They, I remember saying Ken Gap and they said, Ken what? You know? <laughs> oh, you never heard of this before? Oh, oh, you never heard about becoming a, a kin foster parent? No, you never heard about? Because traditionally, kinship was looked at something totally separate. They take care of their own, and they're even in there. And, and that's why I'm saying educating the relative caregiver to those services and to, and to their rights. Right. Um, it's because the education of relative caregivers from their past has been, you just stretch what you have. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's the approach, you know, what's one more mouth to feed? So you don't think about getting additional food stamps. I'm dating myself now, okay? But, and you don't think about getting additional finances, you know, and you don't you think about getting um, uh, IEPs for this particular child. You just stretch what you have and you just use what you have and your limited resources become their resources and, and you don't even think. And in fact, that was best practice. Mm-hmm. 20, 30, 40 years ago, you know, where you should just automatically feel obligated to want to do this, expect to do it. Don't feel as though you have any special rights or privileges because you're doing this. This is what you should be doing. And that set that, and that just kind of like reinforced the mindset that I shouldn't be expecting help. Right. I shouldn't ask for help because this is something I should do and I'm obligated to do. Yep. Great. So our last question for you, Dr. Crumbly, and we ask everybody this, um, what are some of the things that you do to take care of yourself? Well, you mean me, Joe Crumbly? You, Joe yes. Crumbly. Oh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did I sound that shock, didn't I? <laughs> you did. And I'm talking about caregivers taking care of themselves. Well, you know, it's so interesting that you're bringing that up because, um, and Tia Maria knows this, um, I'm, I'm, I'm just now retiring. So that's a major question for me that I'm wow. asking like every day, you know, my last real kind of work was with Tia Maria. And that was like last year this time. 
And I remember that she and I had this question, had this discussion about what are you going to do when you retire, which ties into how do you take care of yourself and how do you put yourself first? And this is brand new to me, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, at that point, I was just telling Tia Maria, well, I want to keep you and your program in my life. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, so it's for me, it's kind of like balancing out the things that I, that make me happy, you know, in, in that, in the work world with, with finding new things now that are like non-work. Cause I think I just so identified myself in work. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't help it. Eight hours a year eight to 10 hours of your waking hours, <laughs> you know, you're working. So now it's kind of like, you know, doing things for yourself. So now it's like doing things like setting up routines that are, that are self-caring, as you say, you know, like um, going to the gym when you could go to gyms, you know. Yeah, I was like, we're going to the gym now? <laughs> you know. Uh, it's a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, it's a pandemic, you know. You know, going to a movies when you could go to movies, you know. But those are the things that I know I need to structure. Movie time, gym time, going to shows, going to plays, you know, reading a book, joining a book club, you know, those kinds of things. And then doing things like this, too, you know. Mm-hmm. Talking about Ken. You know, Tia Maria talking about, okay, when are you going to come back and do the training with the trainers? You know, we can do that. You know, when do we balance that out? You know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's balanced for me and just learning how to put myself first. And instead of it just being 10% of my time, letting it be 60% of my time, you know, just, just filling up my life. So it's that new discovery, really, that, mm-hmm. that I'm doing to answer your question. So I don't know yet, but, I'm, but, I, but at least I know I need to engage in, in that discovery of um, taking care of myself. And it, yeah. well, you know, what you're saying to isn't too different from what caregivers face. Oh, Because wow. you have been in this field of serving others your entire life, right? So now you're sure. having to figure out, okay, I'm stepping away from that. How do I serve myself? Mm-hmm. So Good point. Good point. You know, yeah. but I guess I also know that part of my happiness and identity kind of comes from being involved with people like you yourselves, you know, that are in the field, that are working, you know, and I'm kind of like an extent, but I have to, instead of doing it now, I just have to be an extension of you. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> so you see how I'm figuring it out right now? Okay, I'm going to be an extension of you, you know? Because as I hear you talk, it's kind of like, well, when are we going to make that next home visit? Tia Maria, when are we going to get on that phone call? Whatever happened to such and such, Tia Maria, you know what I mean? Because that's what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm doing a lot of clinical consultation, you know, with folks like you around right. work and around families, around kinship cares, carers, and, and that's, that's been exciting. But then I have to stop myself from, well, when's the next visit? Can I go? You know, can I be in that family decision making? <laughs> you know, and then, but you know, but no, you're retired. No, <laughs> yeah, but this is fun, and I admire you for for what you're doing. You know, what you're doing is so special. So, please consider me a resource. <laughs> Absolutely, and and to that point, um, Joe, where can people reach you if they want to get in touch with you? Uh, let's see. You know, um, it was funny because part of that self care. Uh, had to do with accessibility and how I wanted to still be in touch. So mm-hmm. I've decided to keep a website. I think you, okay. you and I talked about that, Tia Maria. Yes. Now, I do. So I do have a website and I do want people to keep me as a resource. I'm not doing the clinical work, but like just to brainstorm, 
I still do keynotes and presentations. Okay. Um, so if you just want to go to, you can either just go online and just look up Dr. Crumbly and my website comes right up, you know, www.drcrumbly.com. Okay, great. And we'll also, we'll put uh, Dr. Crumley's website address in the show notes as well. And um, I know that you have a book. We'll put a link to your book in the show notes so people can reference that if they want to. And of course, we'll put um, our training with you in the show oh, notes definitely. as well. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That, oh, that's, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I, I took the liberty of contacting... Um, um, there's a, a, a kinship care group, peer group that's national, and they know about your navigator program. I took the liberty of linking them with you and your program and your training. Um, so, so folks might be giving you a call. You oh, know, terrific. You know, oh. and I think I told you about the group I'm working with, and we want to invite you to <laughs> their training. <laughs> <laughs> We're all, you know, uh, in this space, we're all one big family. Yeah, we are. We really are. Collaborate yeah. and help each other. So we love that. Yeah, great. Mm -hmm. All right. So, Joe, thank you so much for oh. being our kinship guru. We we love oh. having you, and I and I am sure that honored. our listeners <laughs> will really get a lot of benefit from your wisdom. Oh, thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care. Best you to too. you. Okay. Hey, Andrea, can you tell our listeners how to reach Kin Connector? Sure, Tia Maria. Kin Connector can be reached at 1-866-546-2111 or at our website, www.kinconnector.org. Thanks, Andrea. And we will see you guys next month.